Morning, church. If I could ask you just uh, to take your, your seats and we'll, we'll look together um, at God's Word this morning. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you after a, a few weeks away in Scotland. Um, the weather was kind to, to us when we were in Scotland. I think we averaged about 17 degrees Celsius, which is a, is a warm summer. Uh, however, for the first time ever since uh, I've been out in Southeast Asia and I went back, it's the first time that I've had to regularly wear a, a jacket or a, or a jumper or a sweater. And that was much to my dad's annoyance. He was going about in his t-shirt and his shorts declaring that it was wonderful weather. And whilst he never said it, I could see that he was looking at me all wrapped up thinking, is this guy still my son? <laughs> anyway, our text this morning is a continuation in our series from Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount. And the passages that we're going to be specifically looking at this morning are found in chapter 5 and verses 21 through to 28. And at first glance, if you've got your, your Bible open, you will notice that our text is broken down into two sections. One is titled Anger and the other Lust. And these were exactly the themes and topics that I wanted to return from holiday to speak about. But before we dive in there, we need to address the bridging passage, which is found in verses 17 through 20, which is sandwiched between that of which Mike spoke on last week, and then these sections which kick off this week and how we are supposed to look and behave as righteous followers of Christ. Verses 17 to 20, if you like, serve as the introduction to the lessons that we will have from anger and lust this week, and then as we continue with divorce and oath next week. So we're going to spend our, our time this morning in three sections. The first 10 minutes, we're going to look at 17 to 20. Then the, the second 10 minutes, we'll look at anger. And then finally, we will close on lust. And I need to ask you two things this morning. Firstly, I need to ask for your forgiveness. These three sections are all worthy of sermons in their own right. And unless you want me to speak for 90 minutes, I am inevitably going to miss something that you think is evident in these passages. So you will have that moment at the end where you say, why did he not speak on that? And then secondly, I would appreciate your prayers as we go through these sections this morning. These are not easy topics and they speak directly to the corruption of our own hearts. We can all relate to these themes that are present. And I'm acutely aware, acutely aware of my own transgressions and my inadequacy as I share with you this morning. And so it would be appreciated if you could silently petition the Lord as we study his word together. So before we begin, let's, let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. Lord, to open your word freely and without persecution. Lord, we appreciate that there are, there are Christians meeting this morning who go to church and they uh, bear the threat of persecution, even Christians in this, own, this country, Lord. And Father, I just thank you that we can meet freely, that we can study your word. And Father, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, Lord, that you would speak deep into our hearts, that you would assure us of our salvation. And Lord, as a result, that our hearts would be changed as we read your word and as we talk through it together. So Father, be with me as I speak. Lord, may I speak what you would have me speak this morning. 
And Father, may this morning and our discussion be glorifying to your name. In your precious Son's name. Amen. Jesus, our teacher, begins the Sermon on the Mount by explaining to his audience that those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek and who hunger, those who are merciful and peacemakers, those who are pure in heart and those who are persecuted. These people, he says, are the people who will inherit God's kingdom. These are people who are living out God-centered lives in a broken world. And then Jesus goes on, as Mike will have spoken about last week, to give analogies of how God's people with these characteristics are to be seen by the world. They are to be people who are salt and light. And here in just a few words, Jesus is able to adequately sum up our duties as followers of him, to glorify him, by being satisfied in him, such that our burning desire is to love him and to love others. And then in the rest of his sermon in this chapter, he goes on to show us how the law can help us to be this salt and light, and how we are to understand that God's redemptive plan is borne out through Christ's fulfillment of the law, created in the Old Testament, and then applied through the lens of the Messiah in the New So turn with me to verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all has been accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There are two types of righteousness that we find in the New Testament. We find legal righteousness and we find practical righteousness. Legal righteousness is the righteousness that we see in the book of Romans, the righteousness where Paul points out that even by being a scholar of the Torah or an ethically good Greek or a moral citizen, it can't provide you with enough righteousness when you come before a holy God. God has instituted the law mainly through Moses in the Old Testament And as we saw in our studies over the last six months when we looked at the Old Testament, God's people were continually falling short of the mark. They couldn't ever fully adhere to the law. And therefore, they needed goats and rams and pails upon pails of blood to offer up and try and atone for their sin. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you too will have come to the realization that you can't adhere fully to the law. And you'll have come to recognize your need for Jesus, the need for a perfect savior, the need for a perfect atonement. And the law could only be fulfilled by one who complied wholly to the law. And in Jesus, 100% compliance to the law, and then through his death, he is offered up to those who believe in him, the payment through his blood for the debt that we owed as a result of our lack of compliance. And therefore, our slates have been wiped clean, legally, 
we are justified. And because we are justified, we are made righteous, legally righteous before the Father. But that's not what this passage is speaking about. Rather, it is speaking about practical righteousness. It's not just speaking about our justification or the blotting out of our record, but rather it is speaking about what our actions will be as a result when we know that our record has been blotted out. Paul tells us that in Scripture that when we ask for God's forgiveness and accept Jesus as our Savior, we earn a new record, or rather our old one has been cancelled out, but also that we are given a new heart. And the Old Testament says that this heart that he's going to give us will have the law of God written upon it. So what happens when you put your faith in Jesus is that you do so because you have recognized your sin and your need for a savior. But you also put your faith in him because you love him, because you admire him, because you want to be like him, to do as he did and be Christ-like in your dealings. Putting it more simply... You put your faith in Jesus because of what he has done for you and also because you love him. And therefore, if you've no interest in practical righteousness, i.e. doing what we should do, then you have no interest in legal righteousness because the two always go together. If your heart has not been changed, neither has your record. And if your record has not been changed, neither has your heart. And if we do acknowledge what Christ has done for us, then we must end up living in a way that shows him gratitude for what he has done for you by living in a way that honors him. For he has made us no longer slaves to the law, but rather slaves to righteousness. And therefore, we now as believers are able to live in a way that doesn't 100% conform to the law, but rather we live in a way that repentantly conforms to the law. The law is to show us the direction of our lives, and on occasion, we will turn to the left, we will turn to the right, we will backslide. But as a result of having a new heart and the Holy Spirit living in us, we will always be turned round back to the Father to offer up our gratitude. And in this text, Jesus is saying that practical righteousness is essential to your walk with God. The law condemned our flesh. The law and our lack of obedience to it pointed us toward our need for a Savior. And when we receive the Savior, he turns us back to the law, not to be condemned by it, not to be beaten up by it, not to fall short of it, but rather to try and live by it. 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That means to bring to full fruition. And this tees us up for how we are to look at our texts detailing the law over the next three weeks. We are to look at them through the lens of Jesus. We are to look at them knowing that we have been justified, that Jesus has paid our debt, And we are to deal with them in a manner that is fitting to show that our hearts have been changed and that we are striving to follow Christ. So turn with me now to verse 21 and we'll look at the first of the two life lessons that Jesus shares in Matthew 5. In relation to anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, Raka, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Otherwise, your accuser will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And then in relation to lust, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Both of these lessons build up in the same way. He starts both of the lessons with an extreme. Look firstly at his teaching on anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. You can picture Jesus on the mount, can't you? Surrounded by doves of people listening intently to the words that he was speaking. And you can see them agreeing with that statement, right? You shall not murder. You can hear them green and see them nodding. Yes, teacher, murder is a terrible thing. We don't agree with murder. But then Jesus continues, and you can see their expressions start to change. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. As Jesus progresses through the statement, you can see why the expression of his listeners must have changed. He has moved from what we would say was the extreme of murder to speaking about things that we all regularly engage in. Anger towards a colleague or church member or family member. Slander or else insult toward a competitor or someone who cuts you up at the roundabout. That happens regularly here. Or calling someone a fool who has challenged us or irritated us on Facebook or Twitter or in general conversation. If ever there was a passage of scripture that denounces what happened in Charlottesville this past week, then it is here. There is no place for vile talk. These things, Jesus says, makes us liable to the fire of hell. And then Jesus' teaching on lust runs parallel to this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is the extreme. But then there again in your English translations, the word but is used. As Jesus expands the definition of what he considers to be improper. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better that you lose one of the members of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Physical unfaithfulness, adultery is a sin. 
something that even in this day and age, the majority of people would still consider wrong or at least hurtful. But looking at someone with lustful intent, that's something that so many of us do and commit on a regular basis. Films, TV, adverts, even music and the radio call out for people to linger on an image of someone they would like to be with. Whether it's a physical image or something that your mind conjures up as a matter of fantasy, the world wants you to engage in it. And Jesus is saying, brothers, sisters, if this is something that you struggle with, cut it off, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the members of your body than your whole body is thrown into hell. When people write or say that they don't believe Jesus was the Son of God, but they do concede that he was a good teacher, I often think to myself that they clearly haven't read the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder how many people would still say that he was a good teacher if they were to read and see that their angry frustrations or their prolonged stare at someone that they would like to be with would actually condemn them to the fire of hell on exactly the same trajectory as that of someone who's committed murder or adultery. Jesus does not mince his words in these sections. This is fire and brimstone stuff. He is making serious statements repeatedly. The word that Jesus uses here for hell, the commentators tell us, is the Greek word Gehenna, which was a rubbish tip outside of Jerusalem. And by rubbish tip, I'm not speaking about some well-managed landfill site, but rather a place outside Jerusalem, which was gigantic, a perpetually burning incinerator, which was the smelliest, most rotten, desolate, miserable place on earth. And that's the image he was using to his, listen, to his listeners to convey his message. So what do we learn from these two lessons? Well, firstly, we learn how we are to approach God and how we are to live in practical righteousness. Look with me at verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The verse starts with the word so in the ESV or therefore in the NIV. And this terminology causes us to read this verse with the contents of the previous verse in our rearview mirrors. In verses 21, 22, Jesus has explained that despising a person through murder, despising a person through attitudes like anger, despising a person through words like fool, they all endanger our soul. And what Jesus is getting here at is that acting in this way is pushing us toward cutting off our ties for God. For we know that we have been redeemed. We know that our record is clear. And therefore, there has to be a transformation in our heart. Where our heart towards others is not one of despising someone, but a heart that loves someone. And this love has to be a proactive love, it tells us. A love that carves out in us a desire to reconcile ourselves to our brothers and sisters. If we come to worship, Jesus says, to the altar, we must do it knowing that 
Our brothers and sisters don't have a rightful grudge against us. Otherwise, the inference here is that we won't be able to freely worship God. And reconciliation is a tough topic. If you've been around church long enough, I'm sure you'll have experienced upset with fellow Christians. These upsets can run deep and cause division, and I have seen them wreck churches and ruin good relationships and hurt lives deeply. And recovering from these upsets is hard. When you've become so entrenched in your position, it is hard to see above the anger and the hurt and the turmoil that that situation has caused. And our natural reaction as people is either to withdraw or to exaggerate the situation further, trying to prove that our stance was right. But Jesus doesn't ask us to prove our righteousness. Rather, he asks us to reconcile. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says in verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God. Be a peacemaker before you worship. And friends, if you're carrying hurt or pain from previous church, church experiences, let me encourage you to offer out your hand and reconcile irrespective of your differences. I have been there, and it took me a long time to do it. But when you do it, when you offer out your hand in reconciliation, it's a liberating experience. Because when brother is reconciled to brother and sister is reconciled to sister, Christ triumphs over the sin that is caused by human frailty, and his name is glorified. And now I understand that in not all circumstances will reconciliation happen, for there are two sides to every story, and there are two parties to every reconciliation. And indeed, Jesus took every step of a human required to try and make matters right with his enemies, and he never sinned, and still they had things against them, and still people were not reconciled to him. But despite knowing this, it is still our responsibility to pursue reconciliation, to attempt it. Paul says in Romans 12, if people, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So in our approach to God the Father, Jesus is looking for us to display hearts of reconciliation. Hearts of love for people, hearts which demonstrate our practical righteousness to a degree where it is beyond mere compliance to the law, where it is above what those of the scribes and Pharisees practiced. Secondly, knowing God is key to guarding our hearts. Knowing God is key to guarding our hearts. Verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Sexuality is a gift from God. God designed and instituted sex. And God uses this as a way for us to know God in Christ more fully. And therefore, all misuses of sex... John Piper says, such as idolatry, adultery, fornication, illicit fantasies, masturbation, pornography, 
homosexual behavior, rape, sexual child abuse, bestiality, exhibitionism, they all distort the true knowledge of God. God means for sexual life to be a pointer and a foretaste of a relationship with him. The word of God is often at its most graphic and its most stark when it speaks about sex. And the Bible uses it to describe the relationship between God and his people, both positively, i.e. when they are faithful, and negatively, i.e. when they are unfaithful. One of the best passages for this is Ezekiel 16. It's, if you want to look it up, it's between Lamentations and Daniel. And it describes both positions, and it uses sexual imagery to metaphorically describe God's relationship with Israel, his chosen people. The first part of Ezekiel 16 describes God's pursuit of undeserving Israel and his unbending love for her. Verse 4, And as for your birth on the day you were born and your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into an open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. That's Israel. She's out on her own. She's unwanted. She's unloved. She is the least. But then God steps in. Verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant out of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood, anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put on bracelets on your wrists, a chain on your neck, a ring on your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful." and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. God has bestowed his love upon Israel, and she has gone from being someone who was abhorrent, in verse 5, to perfect and beautiful amongst the nations, in verse 14. And then how does Israel repay God's goodness? Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on passers-by. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them you played the whore. The like has never been seen and never will be seen. You just took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver which I'd given you and made for yourself images of men and with them you played the whore. And it goes on but I'm sure you get the point. Friends, we are Israel. We were people cast out, walking in sinfulness, condemned by the law. That's verses four and five. But God 
sought us out. And in his infinite grace and in his infinite mercy, he sent a son to die in our place so that we would be made perfect and beautiful. God bestowing his goodness upon us. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, the one who never sinned and who took our record and wiped it clean with his blood so that we can stand before the Father justified and made good. And it's because of this that when Jesus speaks about adultery or about man lusting after someone that they would like to desire, then he tells us that the cure to this is to remove the part of the body that hinders us. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. And there are practical lessons for us here. How do we distance ourselves between temptation and lust? You think of Joseph and his encounters with Potiphar's wife. What did he do? He fled. And what do we do when we come across temptation? Do we nurse it or do we flee? Late at night, when you're on the computer, do you keep the door open? Do you remain transparent? Do you set up parental controls on your computer and give, make your wife or your husband be the person who enters the password? When you're on a works do, do you follow your colleagues to the bar after the meal? Do you spend time with members of the opposite sex in compromising positions? I travel a lot for work, some nice places, some very seedy places. And no matter where I go and no matter how nice the hotel is, I will always be assured that there's temptation hanging around the, lo the lobby area. And I have a good degree of self-control, but I never go near the lobby area. Not because I don't think that I can control myself, but just because there is absolutely no point in even entertaining temptation. And therefore, controlling your mind and controlling your actions comes back to how we have to guard and condition our heart. Jesus tells us in verse 20 that our righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And what he means here is that these guys, they know the law. They are pretty good, at least amongst men, of following the law. But they have trivialized the law. And their approach to the law is a do and don't methodology rather than a heartfelt desire to glorify God through behaving like Christ and satisfying ourselves in him rather than lusting after other things. See, how can we celebrate the record of having our sin dealt with if our response is to keep dipping our toes in earthly pleasures? A deep understanding of God, a renewed hunger for his word, a passion to pray, and regular requests for his Holy Spirit to guide you will protect your heart from inherent lusts. An old pastor of mine once said that any time he found himself prolonging his gaze on someone else or being tempted to open up a web page he shouldn't, he would try and use his mind to conjure up a picture of Calvary. And with that picture of his Savior dying on his behalf, it took over his thoughts and it canceled out any notions of temporary, unfulfilling pleasures 
and they would dissipate from his mind. Let me encourage you to do that, to remember Jesus above any temporary unfulfilling pleasure that may come across your way. Our text this morning has highlighted to us our need to live in practical righteousness, to acknowledge a record of being saved, and to live this out through a changed heart for Christ. Jesus' lessons on anger and lust explain how we are to live this out by firstly coming to him to worship in a rightful manner, free of thoughts of anger and revenge and bitterness toward others. And when we come to worship him, we will know him. And the more that we know him, the more that our hearts are transformed and they become conditioned. And when they become conditioned and are transformed, any lusts and desires that are not of him will be trumped by our thirst for him. So let me leave you with two verses this morning that summarizes how we are to go this week. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you will also be holy in your conduct. And then Ephesians 4 and 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off your old self. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the redemption that he offers us through his death and his resurrection on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that if we are to put your faith in him, Lord, that you cancel out our debt, that you cancel out our lack of compliance to the law. And Lord, that you give us a new record and when you give us a new record, Lord, we thank you that you give us a new heart. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be transformed to worship you, Lord, so that we would show through our actions and our desires and our wants something that glorifies your name and celebrates the cancelling of our record. Lord, let us be transformed. Let us not come away from here just thinking, do not get angry, do not be lustful. Lord, let us go away with a desire not to be angry and not to be lustful because we desire you above those things. And so, Father, it is my prayer that you would take this word, that you would implant it deep in us, that you would let it to shape and fashion us, and that we would glorify you this week. In your precious Son's name, amen. Yeah. So just one final word, we'll be, we'll be finished. When he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he comes through these passages that we'll look at the next few weeks where he says, they told you you have to do this, but I'm telling you, if you're going to exceed what they're doing, you have to do that and this other thing, right? Don't murder, right? Don't murder. Yet not only don't murder, don't hate, not only don't, uh, commit adultery, but don't lust. And then we next week we talk about the the way that divorce and oath is tied together. And as we look about hating and retaliation and some of those things, 
um, in a couple of weeks after that. Here's the, I just want to make sure that we hear the good news. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Comes after Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? The two parts of the gospel are, are always this. We have this uh, obedience part that that we that we really do out of our love for God. Try to uh, try to live out. But even if we were able to keep the law faithfully, we would still be lost. The Pharisees were doing a great job, but they were still lost. And so we also have we have that part where we're trying to obey. But we also have this righteousness of Christ. And the the big uh, biblical word for this is imputed. We have the righteousness of Christ that ends up being credited to our account because we have faith in him. So the whole point of this morning is to make sure that we understand you have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes or you have no chance. And I'm telling you, you can't, you can't do it. You can't do it. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to do it because Christ has done that on our behalf. And so as we have faith in him, then his righteousness then is counted to us. It's in our account so that we can uh, we can be found pure and holy in God's sight. For you, the roundabout is the thing. I've been here 10 years and I almost hit four or five motorcycles this weekend, this weekend, right? And I have yet to respond in a godly manner to that, right? My first thought is, you idiot, what are you doing? Right? It's, it's somehow, and I'm drive, I'm never at fault, uh, but it's always someone else. And Angel will say, I believe that was on you. And I'll say, ah, it was on me, right? But it takes me a couple of kilometers when I calm down that I can see that I can see that. We're consistently in this place where we need the gospel, and so uh, I just want to make sure that we are reinforcing all through this time because um, we've heard many of us the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over. And we do typically drill really down and we, and we, and we get into a whole, we get a whole sermon on those four verses and a whole sermon on the next four or five verses. And so we, we are moving through it more quickly here because I want us to see Jesus gave them this whole sermon at one time. Matthew 5, 6, 7, he gave them the whole time. And there wasn't a question and answer in the middle of it. He just said this and then this and then this, like earth shattering, life changing, earth shattering, life changing, earth shattering for an hour. And then he said, you're dismissed, right? And people went out. And so I'm telling you that Christ came to fulfill the law so you don't have to. Your faith in him is what's going to save you. So make sure you have faith in Christ. Your ability to do it is not going to, is not going to ever, is not ever going to save you. So please don't come week after week and say, identify with Christ. Uh, I've just had such heartbreaking times with people. We'll do like an evangelism training and I'll say, tell me your testimony. And they'll say, uh, both of my parents were Christians and so I'm a Christian. Right. And we're doing an evangelism training and I'm listening to someone's testimony and I'm thinking this person is not even saved. Right. They're a faithful church member and they are not a believer in Christ. And so don't come week in and week out and hear and go away with the gospel unapplied to your life. To me, it's just one of the most heartbreaking things that happens and it happens all the time. OK, so if you have questions about that, please, I'm not ever trying to say I mean, you should question, constantly question whether you're a believer or not. John says, I write so that you might know that you have eternal life. You can know it. You can know it for sure. And so don't leave uh, was-was, right? Don't leave half-hearted. Don't leave unsure. Know for sure where you stand and then 
See as God uh, leads you from that, right? Let me just pray and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for Derek and for his family and just the way that you're at work in him. God, the, the, the way that uh, churches and uh, leaders and people have built into him and made him a better believer so that when you delivered him here, God, he's useful for the gospel ministry. And I pray that uh, as we live and walk together, that uh, both of us would then leave here better able to serve you in the next place that you uh, spin us out to. And Father, I pray that for all of us, that while we're here, that we grow in our faith and that whatever, Lord, our next destination is, if it's our home country or a different place, or Lord, you call us from here to glory, then uh, Lord, we'll be better off than when we got here. I pray we would never be people who uh, just through legalism and good works seek to satisfy you. But Lord, in our brokenness, we would consistently come and say, I can't stop being angry. Lord, help me. And day by day by day, we just trust more and more and more in the gospel. God, thank you that I'm not who I was. God, thank you that I'm not yet who I'm going to be, but I'm right here in this moment and you love me. You love me even in this moment, even in the, the sinful state that I'm in today, Lord, even as I continue to crawl off the altar and try to be uh, my own king over and over and over, you still love me. And so I pray that uh, for all of us here, that you would help us to love the gospel, that we would be uh, identified by who we are in Christ, how our faith makes us different, so that those around us might see and be drawn to this relationship that we have with you. So we pray your blessings on our families. God, I pray for this couple's Bible study that's coming soon and the marriage stuff we're going to do throughout this, uh, the next few months. We just pray that you would bless that and strengthen our families and let us be an example to the community around us and all of these ways as we uh, parent, as we love one another, as we live out faithfully in our singleness. Lord, all of these things, we, we want people to point um, we want these things to point people to Christ. And so, Lord, would you go with us this week? Would you use us in the small, small things that we uh, do day by day by day to, uh, to show people that there is a difference when you have faith in Christ? And so I pray your blessings. God, we pray for uh, health. God, thank you so much that you um, are working through this uh, healing process to restore Nasreen, Lord, from where she was last Sunday to being back with us today, although she still has lingering effects. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the fact that you've restored her this far, that you've protected the rest of the family, and we pray that you would continue to be at work in her body, and we pray that uh, all of these lingering, lingering effects from uh, dengue would just be gone. Uh, Lord, just touch her, we pray, and ask for a complete healing on her. For others who are sick and for down, we pray, Jesus, for your touch on their lives. We love you. Uh, Lord, again, touch uh, and be with the people that we have that are part of our family, that are traveling, uh, Lord, all over the world right now. We just ask that you would bring them back here to JB safely in the next few weeks. Thank you again for this morning. God, we we um, we just uh, thank you for your love for us and for the grace that you've shown us. And we pray that you would help us to uh, echo and image that out to the people around us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.